That was almost good enough that I don't have to ask again, but I'm going to do it anyway. Good morning. There we go. You can be seated, by the way. I'm not going to make you stand all the time. You will be standing again in a moment, but it won't be for very long, okay? All right. Well, welcome to 116 Bible Church. I am 99% sure I know just about every face. So, um, you know who I am. I know who you are. Now that the introductions are out of the way, let's get right into the real reason we're here. Um, and that is God's Word. Um, also, before we start that, um, if you don't know, I'm sure everybody here does, but just in case you don't, um, Brother Jeff's mom isn't doing very well. Um, that's why he's not. he and Pearl aren't here today. They flew to Michigan, um, basically to see what, the, what their options are uh, regarding his mom. So um, keep them in your prayers. Keep his mother in your prayers. Um, keep their children who are here in Texas in your prayers also. Um, they're, they're our family, um, and we, uh, we look after our own. Um, so let's, let's make sure we uh, keep them lifted up in prayer. Um, this morning, um, again, we, we still haven't started a new series, so boy, was this fun. Um, so this morning, uh, we're going to be uh, going to a very favorite passage of mine, um, and that is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, or the publican, if you are a King James person. Um, and that'll be in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. So Luke 18, beginning in verse 9, I'm going to give you a moment to find it. Um, Luke, Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9, in case you're wondering, Luke is right in between Mark and John. Chapter 18 is right in between chapters 17 and 19. Um, and verse 9 is between verses 8 and 10. So there you go, roadmap given to you. Uh, Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. And if you have found it and you are able, I ask that you would please stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. This is what I wanted you about earlier. We're going to read the passage, we're going to pray, and then I'll let you sit back down. Again, that's Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. And the word of God says, Also he, he is Jesus, spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we have just been so blessed to read your very words. God, we pray that in this time that you have given us this morning, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears, that you would pour your spirit out upon your people. God, and here in this very passage, spoken even by your Son, you would show us Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so. The Pharisee and the tax collector. Or the Pharisee and the publican, as it has been known for much of church history. What in the world are we talking about here? Well, uh, let's give a little bit of context here. Um, again, uh, because we're not in the middle of a series, I'm not going to you know, give you the whole kit and caboodle. I'm just going to give you the immediate context, and then we're going to dive right in. So right before this, what do we see? We see actually Jesus giving another parable. And that's the parable of the persisting widow and the unjust judge, um, where Jesus is essentially um, relaying the idea of the importance of persistence in prayer. Um, so going, um, I mean, using the example of the, the widow and the unjust judge saying, you know, even, even an unjust judge, you know, if he's essentially bothered enough is going to eventually give in and do what is asked of him. Um, and the idea here being not, not a comparison to God, but really a contrast to our Heavenly Father in that not that he's up there and he really doesn't want to do anything and if we bug him enough, he'll, he'll finally get, give us what we want, but that our just judge, how much more eagerly will he give to those who not just ask, but ask persistently and expectantly. Uh, and that's immediately before this parable, and immediately following this parable, we see something that I think actually builds upon both of these parables, and that is the um, where Jesus blesses the children, where their people are bringing kids to him, and and his disciples are like, go away, get out of here, shoot, don't bother him, and Jesus is like, whoa, there, let let the, let the children come to me, um, and he uses uses the child as a as an object lesson, essentially, saying that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who receive it as a child. Um, and so sandwiched between these, between this other parable and this very um, striking object lesson of the time is this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And this is probably my favorite parable that Jesus ever taught, at least that we have record of. Um, and I just, I really love what this parable encapsulates. Um, because after talking about the persistence of prayer, he then goes into talking about what our posture in prayer. And not even necessarily uh, whether you should be standing up or sitting down or kneeling or prostrate or whatever, but the idea that rather than being arrogant and coming to God with your resume, we humble ourselves and we come to God not just persistently but hopefully casting all our cares 
upon him. Um, so with that in mind, and um, hopefully I haven't bored you to tears yet, let's go dive right into the passage, beginning with verse 9. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Now, in verse 9, Luke does something, God bless him, so amazing, and he gives us really a setting for the parable. Um, if you've read much of the Gospels, uh, what you'll see is a lot of parable, 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 and not a whole lot of explanation or setting or uh, reasons why this parable was taught. And God bless Luke, he gave us a little bit of that, um, obviously by uh, divine direction from the Holy Spirit. But he's saying here that he, and again, that's Jesus, your translation may actually have his name, um, but he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Now, that is a very, that's a very scary place to be. So what, what do we see here? What we see is Jesus, perhaps, though not explicitly stated, peering into the hearts of men and seeing where their trust truly lied. And it wasn't with him. So what are we talking about here? We're, we're talking about during his earthly ministry, Jesus gathered crowds. Jesus gathered throngs of people. In fact, we see elsewhere in the Gospels where these throngs of people are coming to him. And, you know, Jesus is performing miracles and he's doing wonderful things. He even feeds them. And then after that, the people still start to fall away when he stops doing the amazing things, when he stops providing signs, and when he stops providing wonders, and when he stops using a little bit to feed a multitude. And he's looking into the hearts of men, and he's saying, you're coming to me not because you trust in me. You're coming to me because of what you get. And it's been said by men much smarter than me, if we come to Christ for any reason other than Christ, we come in vain. If we come to Christ because we're expecting something besides Christ, if we're coming to Christ because we're expecting to be fed, if we're coming to Christ because we're expecting to get, if we're coming to Christ because we think he'll sate our appetites until we move on to the next thing, then, my friends, you're not coming to Christ. We're not coming to Christ. That's, that is not the spirit in which we come to Christ. Instead, we don't depend solely upon what we get. And as we see here, we don't depend solely upon our very own resume of accomplishments. Because these things don't matter. They don't measure up. But he's speaking to those who trusted in themselves, who were confident, perhaps like the rich young ruler, who was so confident that um, he had kept all of the laws for his youth. Which is actually the parable that, or what happens right after Jesus blesses the children 
it goes right into the rich young ruler, so perhaps this is all a little bit more connected than we tend to think. But those who, he's speaking to those who are relying on themselves and their own works. And not only that, but they have elevated themselves up spiritually to a place to where they were, your translation may say, looking down on others. Your translation may say, despised others. Um, there's a translation that says, um, viewed others with contempt. Um, I think I think we're almost there with that one. I think it goes just a little bit farther, and your translation may say, treated others with contempt. And that's very important because the idea here isn't simply that they viewed themselves as self-righteous or holier-than-thou, is a phrase we may hear today. And not just that they were looking down on people, but they were actually treating them that way. So these people weren't just confident in their own abilities, in their own in their own strength. They weren't confident in their own righteousness to the point to where they felt secure. They were so confident that they were looking down on and mistreating others that they viewed as less holy than themselves. Now I'm sure we don't have to think too hard about people in our own lives, people that we've met, or perhaps even at one time, ourselves doing that exact same thing. And so to these people, Jesus speaks to then and he speaks to now with this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, immediately in the first century Jewish mind, what are you thinking? You're thinking, you're thinking, two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. In the first century Jewish mind, we're seeing who went up to the temple to pray? Well, a righteous religious figure, perhaps a pastor. Perhaps a priest, perhaps a reverend. Someone who we think of and we think, that person's got it together. And who is the other person? Not somebody who worked for the IRS. We are not a fan. All they do is take money. Now, the important thing to remember here about tax collectors at this time is that it was essentially the governor of a region. It was his responsibility to actually collect the taxes of his region. And he obviously wasn't going to go around and do it himself. He's got a thousand other things he's got to do. So he's going to farm that out to tax collectors, local people who he hired on to collect the taxes. And how did a tax collector make their living? Well, it wasn't really by having the job tax collector because it didn't actually pay anything. It was whatever you collected above and beyond the tax that that individual owed. Whatever you collected above that, that's what you got to keep as a tax collector. So, tax collectors were notorious for their corruption to the point to where they would gouge people for ridiculously high rates. We're talking 50 to 80% taxes here. 
because whatever they whatever they got that was over what they owed, they got to keep. So what we have here is this person who is viewed as basically the epitome of piety. And then we have someone here who is basically the lowest of the low. A traitor, somebody who has turned their back on their own people, gone to work for the oppressor to not just be their eyes and ears, but to come take our money, to come take our livelihood, and not only that, but taking more than what we owe just so they can sit fat and comfortably. You can maybe we can see why these people weren't exactly well liked. Maybe we can see why even Jesus calling a tax collector. Telling him that he's going to dine with him at his house, or even calling a tax collector to be his disciple and to follow him, we can maybe see why that's turning a few heads at this point. We can maybe see why, whoa there, Jesus, you you you, you get what he does, right? You know who he is. But wait, there's more. So we have two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And they go up to the temple to pray. Not for nothing, uh, the temple was basically, there were certain times during the day where the people gathered for prayer, but there was also, uh, basically it was kind of open from dawn to dusk um, for private prayer if you wanted to come pray privately during, uh, during the time, or throughout the day during one of the non-corporate prayer times. So the Pharisee, he stood and prayed. Mine says with himself. Yours may say to himself. Yours may say he stood by himself and prayed. Um, the idea here is simply that um, is simply that the the Pharisee went into the temple, and this is what he prayed. Um, and he was standing up, and he he was quite clearly very proud of what he was about to say. Um, whether or not he spoke it loud enough to be heard or he mumbled it to himself quietly, um, this is what he prayed, and it's pretty despicable. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. God, I thank you that I am special. God, I thank you that I'm better. I'm not like these other men. Your translation may say, as the rest of men. I kind of like that. It's a little poetic. Extortioners, unjust, and adulterers. Yours, instead of one of those words, yours might have the word greedy in there. That's okay. We're getting at the same thing. Or even as this tax collector. So what do we see here? We, we, we see the language appears to be the language of humility. It's saying, God, I thank you that. And that's just when it goes downhill. Right after I thank you, that's, what, that's just when it really goes down. Because it goes from God, I thank you, that I am, I'm just, wow, look at me. God, I thank you that I'm a fantastic human being and that I do all these wonderful, amazing things and that I am not like, all these other people. I'm not like these these greedy people. I'm not like these people who who are screaming for injustice. I'm not like people who are out to extort others. I'm not um, I'm not one of these people out there who are cheating people. And I'm not out here 
cheating on my wife, I'm an adulterer. And then instead of the abstract comparison game isn't enough for him anymore, so then he goes to a specific example. He says, thank you, God, I'm not like this tax collector. What we see here is this Pharisee has the very wrong idea of who he actually is. Because what we see here is this Pharisee, rather than actually thanking God for saving him out of his sins, is instead doing the comparison game and saying, God, thank you that I am better than most everybody else. And he's saying here, we, the world does the same thing, do they not? What is the world's religion? Well, the world's religion is essentially there is no heaven and no hell. There is no afterlife. This is all we get and that's it. But to push somebody in the world and say, okay, well, let's, let's go. Let, let's say there is a heaven and a hell. Um, who's going to heaven and who's going to hell? You push them a little bit farther, and they'll say, well, okay, if we say that there is a heaven and a hell, then mm, pretty much as long as you're not Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, Mao Zedong, you're going to make it into heaven. So, the same thing happens today. This, this comparison, this blame game really is what it is. Is, God, don't look at me, look at these people. The Pharisee's condition wasn't that he wasn't aware of his own sin. The Pharisee's condition was that at some level he was aware he was trying to shift God's attention elsewhere. It's that God, I thank you that I'm not like the unjust, the greedy, the extortioners, the adulterers. Thank you that I'm not like that. Thank you that I'm not even like this guy over here. We all know what he's doing. The Pharisee's problem wasn't that he didn't know he was a sinner. The Pharisee's problem was that he knew he was a sinner. He was just too proud to ask for mercy. So instead, he tried to shift the attention somewhere else, to somebody else. He tried to say, God, look over there. Don't look at me. Look over there. That is a bad person. I'm doing okay. So he goes then from what he's not to what he does. He says, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I possess. You've probably heard this before, but I'm going to, I'm going to sum it up real quickly. The idea here is that um, scripturally, the Jewish people were only commanded to fast once per year, and that was uh, during the Day of Atonement. Um, and that was the only scripturally prescribed uh, fast during the whole year for all Jewish people. A particularly pious person would fast, by this point in Jewish history, was fasting twice a week. And it was essentially um, it was essentially from sun from sundown Sunday to sundown Monday, and then it was from sundown Wednesday to sundown Thursday. Um, so essentially, they were fasting Monday and Thursday. 
And as for tithes, tithes were only prescribed, you were only prescribed to give a 10% of what you produced, not of what you received and consumed. So if you were a farmer, it was a 10% of your crops. If you were a, what we would call a rancher, um, it was a 10% of your livestock. Um, but this, this guy here, he's saying, not only am I not like this, not only am I not like this guy, but I fast twice a week, which is 104 times more than you have commanded us to fast. And I give a tenth of everything that I possess, not just of what I produce. He was a Pharisee. Remember, remember that. He was a Pharisee. He didn't produce anything. He actually lived on the tithes and the priest offerings from other people. So he's saying, I give a tenth. I give a 10%. I essentially re-tithe that from which I received from the tithes and the priest offerings given by your people. He's saying, he's saying, God, I'm going above and beyond here. God, I, I, I am pretty, I'm, I'm doing pretty okay. And I want to thank you, God, that I'm not like the rest of these people. So this Pharisee comes to God in the temple, which is the center of Jewish worship. He comes to the temple, and with his mouth, Using the very air that God is blessing him with. Giving God his resume. Like God owes him something in return. I'd like to say that this attitude died with this Pharisee. But unfortunately this is an attitude that I see far too often in myself where I will go to God and I will say God if I didn't love you why would I have done all these things where I'm upset because a certain portion of my life or where I or where I am at that point in time isn't where I thought I would be or where I think I should be and so I am instead angry and I'm going to God and I'm saying God what about all this this is an attitude of arrogance and pride that has to die the death of a thousand deaths. You have to get up every day and you have to put that part of yourself to death. You have to get up. We, as a people, as God's people, have to get up. And that's why the first words out of our mouth have to be to God. Because if not, we run the risk of taking this arrogance, not just with us to God, but with us out into the world. And that is not, that's not the people Christ died for. That, that's not the way Christ died to leave you, to leave me. He has instead sent his son to die for us, to pull us out of this entitlement attitude. He has sent his son to die for us, to yank us out of this, this life of self-centered, self-righteous, self-aggrandizing 
attitude and pleas that we make like we deserve something like we're owed something like like we go to him and I really I genuinely think Christ gave this parable on the heels of the persistent widow parable to caution all his hearers to say don't get the idea that just because you go to God frequently that you are therefore owed what you are asking. Because we're not. We are completely and utterly helpless and at his mercy, which the Pharisee did not understand. But there's another person in the story. Another man who went up to the temple to pray. Verse 13, the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. So the tax collector, remember remember who we're talking about here. We're talking about a Pharisee, which in the Jewish mind, that person's way up here, way up here. He's a pious individual. He knows the scriptures. He knows the Bible. So obviously he's holy. And then we have this tax collector who stood afar off. Why? Because he was overwhelmed and overcome by his sense of unworthiness. He says, I'll get as close as I dare, but no closer. And the, uh, the posture that they're talking about here is this I, um, praying, facing heaven. We tend to pray with our heads downward, probably as the result of, of this parable. But we tend, uh, once upon a time, it was a very common practice to pray facing up. Um, I don't know what, what the psychology behind that is. I don't know what the thought process was. But that was, it was very common to pray uh, with your face pointed upwards towards the sky, um, like you were talking to God. But the tax collector comes in, he stands afar off, he gets as close as he dares and no closer, and rather than look upwards, he won't even lift his eyes to heaven. So it's not like he's bowing his head, but he's looking up. Everything about him is downward. What are we seeing here? We're seeing we're seeing the arrogant posture of the Pharisee contrasted with the humble posture of the tax collector who won't lift his eyes even to heaven but is beating his breast. And we're we're not talking this isn't Tarzan, the man's not about to let out a massive jungle cry. Um, the brothers in mourning. This was, this was a common sign of mourning. When you were overcome by the emotions from losing somebody. This was typically seen at funerals. But we see here a man who is mourning 
his own sinfulness. And he's mourning it in the way that you would mourn the loss of a loved one at their funeral. Mourning the death of somebody you love and he's pounding his chest, beating his breast because he can't bear the thought of his own sin and what it cost. Because, my friend, our sin does result in the death of somebody. As a Christian, it resulted in the death of God's only son. So he's pounding his breast because his sin cost something. So this man enters the temple. He doesn't know what to do, so he mourns. He doesn't know what to say. So he opens his mouth and what comes out is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Your translation has it probably more accurately. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Or your translation probably has even still more accurately, God, turn your wrath from me. It all means the same thing. This man, this tax collector, who was all too aware of what he's bringing into the temple. And it's just his sin. Whereas the Pharisees coming in with a list of accomplishments and deeds and... At least I'm not like this. The tax collector's coming in knowing he has nothing to give. He has nothing to stand on. He is coming in, though a tax collector, though probably wealthy, or at least well off, knows that the only thing he can count on is the mercy of God. This be merciful to me, or this turn your wrath for me. It can literally be translated as God be <coughs> propitious to me. And friends, that word should be should strike a very clear chord. It should ring a very loud bell because the one telling this parable came to be the propitiation for our sins. He came to be the one by whom God's mercy was granted and his wrath turned away. And that's what the tax collector is praying. He's saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, turn your wrath for me. God, be propitiated towards me. Be propitious to me. And that's it. He doesn't he doesn't give his his resume. He doesn't give ten good reasons why. He just says, God, have mercy. Just like was read so beautifully this morning in the song, and how appropriate and how fitting. God, be merciful. Because when we come to God, we only come to God requesting mercy. We do not come to God demanding justice. Because when we come to God saying, God, give me what is due. Give me what is owed to me. 
we don't we won't like what we get back. We only come to God requesting mercy because it is only his mercy and only his grace that will save us from what we are actually owed. There are so many, both inside and outside the church today, who have become Pharisees of the religion of self. They are justifying to themselves their own behavior, their own actions, their own existence by comparing themselves to others that they view as worse. Neglecting to realize that it is only the grace of God that has kept them from becoming a Hitler, a Stalin, a Mussolini, a Mao Zedong, and Osama bin Laden. It is only the grace of God that has kept any single one of us from going down that path. It is God's restraining grace keeping sinners and saints from spiraling downward into complete and utter sinfulness where sinful expression is not hindered by anything. My friends, you you want a picture of hell? That's hell. Where sin runs rampant and unrestrained. That's hell. And it is God's grace that has kept us from devolving into that exact scenario. Jesus ends the parable by saying, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. And again, Jesus, thank you so much. You explained exactly what it was you were trying to teach us in this parable. With the end of verse 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What do we see here? We see a very clear picture. I mean, just a very succinct summation of what Jesus was teaching with this this very short story. Saying, if you come to God proud, if you come to God bragging, if you come to God trying to blame shift and playing the comparison game, if that is your approach, or your posture when you approach the Lord. What you're going to get is humility, ultimate humility. You're going to be brought low to the point of eternal damnation. But if you if you come to God humble, if you come to God with an awareness of your sinfulness, if you come to God knowing that you have nothing to bring, nothing to give, that all you have is need, that person will be exalted 
will be lifted up to eternal life and glory. My friends, this is why. This is the hope that we carry with us. This, this message that the pride will be brought very low and the humble will be raised up. But they have to come to God. And that's why we here, we know, we know who it is that draws men to himself. We know who it is that brings others to himself, that brings people unto himself. We know that it's only Christ who does that. We know that it's only the Lord who does that. And so we take the message of the Lord with us as we go out. And we proclaim this good news. We say, you don't have to try. You don't have to try to make your heart lighter than the feather of Osiris. You don't have to try to do so many good things in this world that you just hope against hope that it's going to be enough. You don't have to live that way. You can come to Christ and you can humble yourself and ask God for mercy. And he will grant it. This is actually the passage that I <laughs> used to um, do my first open-air sermon. And boy, was that weird. You get a lot of weird looks doing that. But the question I asked, because... It was actually just kind of, it was a very impromptu thing. I wasn't expecting to preach at that time. Um, but that's kind of how Jeff is. He'll say, he'll say, I'll just go and pass out tracks, and then 15 minutes in, he's passing you the mic. So, um, but the only question I could think to ask, and it's a question that I'm going to ask you, I'm not going to provide an answer. For you, I'm going to let you and the Holy Spirit duke that out. Have you become the Pharisee of your own religion? Have you... Have you become the Pharisee, the high priest of your very own religion? Where you spend your prayer life, instead of asking God for mercy, showing God your resume... Or have you become so proud that you've stopped praying altogether? Because, I mean, say what you will about the Pharisee He's doing something that at least looks like that. <coughs> Clearly he's not doing it well. But he at least sees a need for prayer. Have you become the Pharisee of your own religion where your prayers are a list of accomplishments when your prayers even actually happen? And I'm asking myself this too. My encouragement to you, brother and sister, is by the power and the grace of the Spirit of God that rests upon all his people, that abides with, dwells with, lives with his people.
come to the Lord humbly, asking him for mercy, and he will grant you mercy. Let's pray. Our Father, God, be merciful to us. Be merciful to we sinners, God. Turn your wrath from your people, from we sinners who come to you humbled by your spirit, asking for mercy and grace. your wrath from your people, Lord, and we pray, God, we pray that your mercy would continue, and as your word promises, that your mercies would be new every morning. That's what we ask. That's what we need. in your word, in your promises, in you to know and to trust that when you say you have granted mercy to believe that you have indeed granted mercy. We love you, Father. things in Jesus' name. Amen.